0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
1: Welcome back, guys. DGS on Camo X. So very excited to uh, talk to my next guest, Mickey Dolenz. Of course, everyone knows Mickey Dolenz from the Monkees. Going to be in town at the Family Arena on October 13th, an evening with Mickey Dolenz. Mickey, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for spending a few minutes
2: with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time. Yeah, looking forward to it. I love that area. I love St. Charles, and I love the family arena. It's a great venue.
1: Yeah, I know you and Tom O'Keefe have been friends for a long time. Uh, So let me get the gushy stuff out of the way. So I was born in 64, just about the time you were getting your start with the band, and uh, I have been a a lifelong musician, a drummer, a singer, still do it, and while— Every drummer has Ringo DNA. You were really the impetus for me watching the show and those champagne sparkle Gretsch drums. And it it was just magic to me. And my brother, who was 11 years older, was a guitarist. And I would sneak in his room and I would open up the guitar case and I would feel the wood and kind of smell the case. And I was just smitten. So in a very real way, you had a very big impact on my life. So thank you. Well, thank you. That, that was great. And what kind of kit do you play? Uh, I've owned a champagne sparkle Gretz set like you. Uh, right now I have Ludwig Vista Lights. I'm sort of a purist. I'm an old school guy. I like old drums and old guitars and I guess just the classic recapturing my youth.
2: Yeah, well, they sound different. You know, uh, they do. The, sometimes the way they're constructed, especially guitars, but also drums, you know you're absolutely right. I think more uh, care was used maybe uh, and more um, uh, and more quality material, yeah. <laughs> but it also made it more expensive uh, yeah. as the years went by and so um i think it I think it makes the difference. I really, really do. So as a drummer, I'm fascinated,
1: my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you didn't actually play when you joined the band and you were thrown into the deep end of the pool and to the extent that you could, you you had to learn to
2: play drums like on the job, am I right? Well, more or less, but I just want to clarify one thing. Remember, the Monkees was not a band. It was a television show Mm -hmm. about a band and we were cast into the show like you'd cast a musical. And I played guitar. My audition piece was Johnny B. Good. Mm-hmm. I still played guitar. But I could read music. And I had months to learn. And <clears throat> I studied very, very hard. Um, but I, I I'd sat down at kits, you know, uh, when I was in my cover bands before the Monkees. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, remember that the Monkees was a TV show and I was cast as the wacky drummer, mm-hmm. and I, I said, where do I start? Where do I start to, to learn? But I didn't have to learn everything. Yeah. I didn't have to learn every groove, every single uh, rhythm. I only had to learn what I had to learn yeah. uh, to, play, to play those songs. And, you know, they were great songs, which helped. You think of those songwriters, and I'll be doing all of them in the show, of course. Yeah. But I was so blessed to have these songwriters writing for me. Uh, Tommy Boyce and Bobby Hart, Carole King, Neil Diamond, uh, Harry Nielsen, Paul Williams, Neil Sadaka. You know, these people don't write a lot of duff tunes. <laughs> and, so, and so it makes it easy for me as a singer. The toughest thing I've found, and I don't know if you sing when you play, mm-hmm. the toughest thing that i found playing, of course, is singing lead it um it really is like you know patting your head and rubbing yeah. your stomach at the same same time because, as you know, as a drummer, the drummer's the clock of the band, and the um the lead singer, your vocals float all over the place across bar lines and stuff like that, not to get too technical, but yeah. you know what i mean yeah, yeah that was that was tough, and in the sixties, with no monitors, <laughs> it
1: was. That was crazy. And you guys had the, you had the same problem that the Beatles had, which was you were being drowned out by the fans who were screaming for you, and even your amps weren't that big by today's standards. I mean, I, I've read many accounts from the Beatles talking about how frustrating it was and how eventually they just started kind of having fun with it. Uh, what was that like being in front of the audience at the very height of, like, the monkey craziness?
2: Well, like that, like you just described, it was impossible to hear a thing. Um, uh, and like I say, there were no monitors and no click tracks, nothing like that. And the sound kept became bouncing off the back mm. wall of the arena a couple of seconds later, I gave up trying to to you know to uh, you know try to figure it out. I closed my eyes, which I still do now when mm. I play out of habit and I started uh, setting the snare drum up right level with my leg because mm-hmm. I couldn't even hit hear myself hitting the snare. Mm. And I would hit my leg because I could feel it. <laughs> and, and that was my mm. rim shot, was hitting my leg. I got a huge bruise with oh, yeah. my leg. And they, they made me a big, like, bandage uh, padding for my leg. <laughs> and then I would... I get the uh, tempo off of Mike's boot. Wow. We had it because he, he was in front so he could hear uh, me and himself, of course, and Peter on bass. And remember, we were really a power trio. Davey mostly played tambourine and sang, of course. But uh, the, the the band was really Nez on a 12-string, Peter on bass, and sometimes keyboards and meandrums. And Ness could hear it all, so he would tap his, the heel of his boot, and I'd look at it like a, a visual click track to try, to try to
1: keep me in tempo because I
2: couldn't hear a thing.
1: That's amazing. I uh, I also play guitar, but not well at all, not being self-deprecating. I just don't. I picked it up in fourth grade, and I never really got better. It never made sense to me. Like, the fingering and the scales never made sense. And the first time I sat down in a drum kit, uh, obviously it's much more physical, but the very first time I sat down, it made sense. Uh, but the 12-string, the Rickenbacker, the, you know, so Michael Nesmith always struck me, and, and obviously I, this isn't any sort of genius, uh, Just such an interesting, multi-layered, textured guy. Even during the show, like not even after the show, yeah. Even during the height of the shenanigans and the hijinks, you could see
2: something in him that was special. Oh, absolutely, and that is obviously what the producers saw in him, and indeed in all of us. I mean, they must have. That's why we were cast, and the audition process was extensive, much more than your normal television show. Mm -hmm. It was singing and playing an instrument. You had to be able to sing and play uh, to get in the auditions. And then there was the acting. There was the screen tests uh, in the more traditional sense, but there was also interviews and improvisation. That was the thing that stood out to me as an actor that had been in, uh, in the business even at that time, I'd already been in 10 years, Mm -hmm. I had my own series when I was a kid in the 50s called Circus Boy, but the improvisation thing was the thing that, it kind of threw me at first, I was used to getting a script, reading the lines, going home, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, you did not improvise, it was verboten, Um, and so that threw me, but I got better, Nez was great right from the start. He was just so good at the improvisation. But, yeah, that's what they must have seen. Well, they must have seen something in all four of us. Yeah. Um, You know, and that's—go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 not at all. I was just going to
1: make the observation that uh, being such a big Beatles fan, I've always marveled at how the universe put them together, and a bunch of producers put you guys together,
2: but they both worked. Well, yeah, but, you know, that when you say put together, uh, you know, it, it, what does that mean? We've been in the business um, for years. Ness had been in folk groups, and so had Peter. David been on Broadway, and then uh, and, and in, in London doing musicals. And I'd been on Circus Boy and had cover bands. And um, so it, put together, I think, is, it, is I don't know, it's just kind of inaccurate, mm-hmm. we were cast. Yeah. Now, the, the Beatles the Beatles were, were friends. Uh, you know, they met when they were 14 or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And that's typical. That is kind of typical. But you look at the Jimi Hendrix experience, and that was put together. That was, you know, Chas yeah. Chandler, uh, you know, saw Jimmy somewhere, uh, American kid, and he must have known Mitch and Noel and he's the one that put them together. The Jimi Hendrix experience didn't happen in that same, you know, kind of youth, uh, organic way. Like the Beach Boys were relatives, you know, and so that was kind of more typical. Uh, now, of course, anything goes; you can do it any way. But remember yeah. the Monkees? Again, the Monkees was a television show about yeah. a group, and the group a group that wanted to be the Beatles. And that's one of the fascinating things, I think, about the show and and the legs that it obviously had. Um, Because on the television show, remember, we never made it. On the TV show, we were always struggling for the success and trying to get the gig. And we lived in this Malibu beach house, which was the set, of course. And um, we were rehearsing and playing and trying to get a record deal and... And it spoke to all those kids around the world that were trying to do the same thing. And on the TV show, the monkeys never made it. We were just struggling for that success, which does beg the question of how we <laughs> could afford a Malibu beach house. <laughs> and a when kick-ass we never car. never any work. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Even as a little kid, I, I wondered. And I'm like, man, they have a nice car for not having any jobs. Um so- <laughs> it's exactly as a uh, as a good talk show host, I went to Wikipedia, and one thing that just made me laugh and shocked me—you can tell me whether it's true or not—is that both you and Michael uh, auditioned to be Fonzie on Happy Days, but were uh, not looked at seriously because you were too tall.
2: Well, I can tell you only from from my my memory. I certainly did um, uh, audition. And I believe it was down to, between me and Henry Winkler. And um, I have heard the, that rumor that Nez uh, auditioned, but I don't know that that's true because I don't remember him ever confirming that with me. He could have. He could have, absolutely. But <clears throat> I do remember my audition, or well, a couple of them. And uh, I believe it was down to me and Henry Winkler because I do remember the interview when uh, audition when we went in and we were both there. And he tells the story. Um and years la- uh, later when we became friends, he says, When I walked in and saw you, I thought, Oh crap, Mickey <laughs> Dolans is here. I'm never gonna get it, you yeah. know. Yeah. And um of course, of course I'm glad he did. He was perfect, he was wonderful, a great bit of casting, and um uh, he was and is, you know, the Fonz. Yeah. Um yeah.
1: So, uh, I'm talking to Mickey Um uh, He's going to be here at the Family Arena on October 13th, an evening with Mickey Dolans. Your book, I'm Told I Had a Good Time, Love That, is out next month. Uh, kind of <laughs> w- walk us through that a little bit. Just kind of highlight it for the fans out there.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine, an associate, uh, started going through all of my archival stuff, including tons of photographs that I – uh, I was a big on a big photography kick in the 60s and 70s, and I had a big cameras and little cameras, and and I just was snapping shots and uh, everywhere. Uh, a lot of the other with the other guys, um, Mike, David, and Peter, and then friends of ours that would be hanging around like Stephen Stills and and Harry Nielsen, of course, my my good friend, and then uh, on the road and taking pictures of Jimi Hendrix and the experience when they were opening for us and all kinds of touring anyway it's a it's a 500 page book wow. of photos and it's mostly all photos there's some captions and a couple of little stories but also stuff from my life before the monkeys childhood obviously stuff i kept in my uh, photos that my parents had taken yeah and um so it's a, like I say, it's archival. We're calling it uh, volume one. <laughs> I'm told I had a good time. It's out uh, in November and you can check it out um, on my website, Mickey
1: I love it. Let me talk to you as a fellow girl dad. I have a daughter, Phoebe, who's in her freshman year at KU. I know you have daughters. Uh, how long did it take them to figure out that their dad was a monkey or did they, did they care?
2: Well, you know uh, <laughs> that's a great question um I, you know you'd have to ask them uh, uh, obviously um how it struck them at the time, but you gotta but they were they were like only just born uh they were born after the main monkey uh, thing, of course in sixty six they were born in the early eighties, mm-hmm. and so in England and we lived in england and I wasn't doing any monkey stuff. I was directing and producing television shows. So when they were very, very young, there wouldn't have been any of that. We lived out in the, in the, in the Midlands of, of England on a huge uh, estate kind mm. of thing with horses and, and orchards and, and stuff. So they really wouldn't have been exposed to much until 86 when my wife and I decided to go back to the States for a few weeks I was offered this uh, reunion tour, and it was supposed to be like 10 weeks, you know, tops, and it turned into three years. And so the girls spent three years of their early lives on tour buses. Yeah. And and, uh, so that is when they would have like gone, whoa, what is this all about? (laughs) I love it. Yeah.
1: Mickey, you'll appreciate this One of my good friends is Jeff Carlisi The lead guitarist of 38 Special And back in the 90s He took his daughter and her friends To see Bon Jovi when they were huge And the guys from Bon Jovi were freaking out Because they were 38 Special fans And they walked out and his 14-year-old daughter said Oh, I finally get it You used to be them And he was like, yeah
2: Yeah Boy, that's, that's great it's really interesting. Maybe somebody should do a, a book or a or a, a documentary or something about, the, the you know, the children. Of, yeah, of, uh, yeah. it would be kind of interesting, the different perspectives. Yeah, I love it. I remember one time I was
1: walking with my daughter when she was about four or five, and uh, I said, hey, honey, what do you think it is that your dad does for a job? And she <laughs> thought about it, and she said, well— you you on the radio, so you make people laugh, and you're in a band, so you make people dance. So I guess I'd say my dad makes people laugh and dance. And I remember, like, uh, tearing tearing up and going, like, put that on my tombstone. That's perfect.
2: It is, and that is what we do, isn't
1: yeah, it? Yeah, it is. We're lucky guys. Yeah. Well, Mickey, oh, I'm going to let you go. I know you got other stuff to do, but it's been an absolute uh, privilege and pleasure speaking with you uh, once again. Mickey Dolenz will be at the Family Arena, great venue, on October 13th. We're an evening with Mickey Dolenz next month. His book, I'm told, I had a good time, is coming out. Mickey, thank you for the time. Thank you for the music.
2: Thank you for everything too, um, and see you there. At-